production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. <laughs> Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Wednesday, February 14th, and I'm Kristen Beard Adams, President of the City Club Board of Directors. I'm pleased to introduce today's forum on the evolution of the modern public library in partnership with Cleveland Public Library as part of its 155th anniversary and Founders Day celebration that will march, mark this weekend. It's certainly fitting that we are hosting this forum on Valentine's Day because it is abundantly clear that Ohioans love their libraries. In fact, a recent study found that Ohio ranks first nationally in library visits per capita and the Buckeye State has the highest public library usage rate in the United States. Histor <laughs> Historically, Ohio trails only New York and the number of five-star libraries, a yearly distinction awarded by the Library Journal, the oldest and most respected publication covering library science. Our very own Cleveland Public Library has received four or five stars every year since 2009. As, well, as one of our nation's cherished, most cherished public spaces, libraries have become deeply integrated into our communities. For generations, they've gone beyond books and stepped in to meet a wide variety of social and civic needs, building decades of trust and leaving an indelible mark on so many of us along the way. Yet this growth has also deepened the debate about what a modern library can or even should offer as part of its services. Joining us today to discuss that evolution of the modern library and balancing the growing needs of the communities they serve are Sonia Alcantara Antoine, CEO of the Baltimore Public Library and president of the Public Library Association, Michelle Francis, executive director of the Ohio Library Council, Jason Kuchma, Executive Director and Fiscal Officer of the Toledo-Lucas Toledo County Public Library, and Cleveland's very own Felton Thomas, Jr., Executive Director and CEO of the Cleveland Public Library. <laughs> moderating, moderating today's conversation is Chanel Smith-Wigman, Senior Vice President and Director of Community Relations and Corporate Initiatives at KeyBank. If you have a question, if you have a question for our panelists, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And the City Club team will do its best to work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends, guests as well, of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming today's speakers. Thank you, Kristen, um, and thank you and welcome to our guest um, to Cleveland. 
Happy Valentine's Day, Cleveland. Hey. So we know today is a, love, a day of love, and so we're going to kick off with a question uh, for all of our panelists. And that question is, and we'll start with you, Sonia. When did you fall in love with the libraries? Um, I, uh, I fell in love with libraries, uh, my school library, um, at an early age. Um, I grew up with books in the home. Um, I have a lot of warm memories about my father reading to me. He would read the, the Sunday funny papers to me, and I, I love that. That was like my favorite part of the week. Um, but my parents were immigrants from the Dominican Republic, so they did not have a tradition of public libraries in their home country. So they did not know to take me to a public library. Um, so I discovered libraries through my school library, and it wasn't until I was a teenager and I had to meet with a classmate at the local public library to work on a class project that that was my first time actually walking into a public library. And I was like, oh my god. <laughs> um, I, I was like in love right away. Yeah, those projects can create friends for life or enemies for life. Absolutely. Uh, so. Jason. Uh, first of all, thank you. There's so many amazing library leaders here. I feel like the guy who just picked up a guitar and then went to the Rock Hall to teach people how to play. <laughs> well, the Rock Hall is down the street, so yeah, you can go to the Rock Hall if you want. He's right there. Um, <laughs> in all honesty, I mean, I, I've, I kind of fall in love with our public library every day. Um, we have a, a cafe at our main library called Same Cafe, which stands for So All May Eat, and it's a participatory restaurant. And any time you go there uh, for lunch, you'll see uh, our you'll see our our staff eating there, you'll see um, people from the community, you see business leaders, people experiencing homelessness or other types of trauma. Um, so anytime I see so many different types of people in the same space really just reminds me how special and important the public library is. Thank you. Michelle, what's your love story? So my love story really is began or started with Ohio's public libraries because I'm originally from Kentucky. And growing up in Kentucky, we did not have public libraries like Ohio has. Um, and when I came uh, to Ohio for law school, I actually tried to get away from the law library. <laughs> so, uh, so I went to my local public library, and I just fell in love. And just, it was just been amazing ever since. And it's just great to work with them every day. And like Jason, we have so many amazing public library people here from all of Northeast Ohio and beyond. So just thank you for being here today, and thank you for your work. Thank you. Director? So I want to kind of turn it around a little bit and share some library love to people out here, because there are so many folks to love, including my bosses, so I got to do that. <laughs> my bosses at Table 16, a big <laughs> shot of love, including Sarah Alcott from the, from the school board, who I want to make sure we give love to. I'd like to give love to all of the Cleveland libraries out there. I'd like to give love. Oh, thank you, Cleveland Libraries. I'd like to give love to uh, some of the other libraries who have joined us, like Westlake Library, except for Andrew Manigals. You don't get any, any love from me. <laughs> no love for Andrew. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, and give love for all of you who support libraries, right? It's, we're not here if it's not happening from you. So thank you for all, all that you do. It's the Cleveland Public Library staff who are, we're very lucky to have, but we have great staff in this, in this state, right? We have the best libraries. We talk about five-star rankings. Of the top six libraries in the country, four of them were from the state of Ohio because we have the best libraries. Mm -hmm. Cuyahoga County. The Cuyahoga County Public Library is always ranked number one in all of the rankings, and that's because of their great leadership and Tracy Strobel over there. 
So now that I did my Joe Simperman question, which is Joe never answers questions, he just tells me. He just says hi to everybody in the audience so that they all feel good about themselves. Um, I, I actually, I, I, I felt I, it took me a while to fall in live, love with libraries, even though I started working in libraries when I was like 13. Mm. Uh, everybody was like, well, you're going to be a librarian when you grow up. And I was like, no, I'm not. Uh, you know, and I never thought I was going to be a librarian. And then one day when I was getting ready to go to graduate school and the library staff members came to me and said, you know, we really want you to become a librarian. And I was like, I don't really want to be a librarian. And, <laughs> and they said, here's the schools you can go to. And at the bottom was the University of Hawaii. And I said, you'll pay for me to go to the University of Hawaii? <laughs> and they said, it's accredited. And I said, goodbye. <laughs> right? And uh, pretty soon afterwards, I fell in love with libraries. So I am very, very fortunate to, to be able to share what libraries do with folks every day. So we're gonna stick with you for a little bit, mm -hmm. Director. We're not going to Hawaii, but uh, <laughs> we're, we're gonna stay right here in Cleveland. We've seen libraries evolve mm. um, just, just in my lifetime. From, who remembers the Dewey Decimal si System? Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, to now Overdrive. <laughs> and libraries have continued to do their continual work of book lending, book borrowing. In what ways have libraries adapted over the last few years, and, and what are some of the things yeah. that you all are doing to adapt? Well, I mean, I think it's not just the last few years. You know, we're here because it's, you know, on February 17th, the Clean Public Library will be 155 years old, right? And it's, it, we look at it, uh, and you look back and you say, people have always say, well, can't libraries just be libraries? But there is a truth to uh, over, you know, literally 90 years ago, Clinton Public Library had librarians that were bringing in immigrants from different groups to come together so that they could learn each other, learn from each other by their food, right? And so libraries have always been this entity that we always try to find ways to make our communities better. We just do it by whatever method is in place. And for the most part, it's been books. And everybody says traditionally, why don't the libraries just stay with books? But there's a reality of it that every community needs something different. So when people, people are always shocked to know, you can come to your library and get a passport, right? We, we do passport. You can come to your library and register to vote, right? You can come to your library and find out how you can download um, Overdrive and do Libby, or you can get access to um, movies instead of having to stream Netflix at 10.99 or whatever they're trying to charge now. 15.99 now. You can download, you know, you can download movies. You can download music, right? Libraries have become what their community needs, and we are fortunate to have partners like the Cleveland Food Bank. That, you know, once again, a Joe Simperman <laughs> moment, right? Where, where Food Bank brings in lunches for our kids, so we're giving hundreds of thousands of meals to our kids because of organizations, or we're working with Legal Aid Society to provide legal aid for our community. So libraries, right, yeah. And I could go on and on with so many of the groups in here, but uh, I just wanted, it, it is the reality of it is the library is what the community needs now. So when you ask the question, can libraries be everything to everyone, actually the reality is, why can't we be everything mm. to everyone? And that's what we think of ourselves. So one of the things you mentioned is that, you know, sometimes, well, people come to libraries to register to vote. They come from different social services. Libraries are really becoming the third space, right? So shout out to Evelyn Burnett and Mordecai Cargill, third space, actually, <laughs> um, right here in Cleveland. Jason, I'm going to switch to you because you guys are doing something really creative in Toledo, Lucas County, when it comes to civic engagement and really being 
um, a, a place for, for democracy. So can you share a little bit with us here in Cleveland what you're doing? Yeah, and I, I think a lot like Felton said, you know, we reflect our community, we reflect our community's needs, and we know this year is going to be a very interesting election year. And so last year we had spent a lot of time digging into what it means uh, for our community to be civically literate uh, and civically engaged. And so we built an online civic center that basically serves as a portal just like our physical spaces where you come in and you can get what you need, what access, access to what you need in one space, and people can find out uh, how, to, how to vote, what their ballot looks like. Um, and I think one of the things that really impresses me about the system that we're using is that people can actually see, oh, which, which seats are going to be open? Is there going to be a, a city council seat open, school board seat? Um, and actually gives people an entree into becoming civically engaged by running for office. And so I think we're trying to really reflect the way uh, and the needs of our community in, in, in ways that uh, are meaningful to them. And so you're also the CEO and director, right? But also right. the fiscal uh, officer for the library. We know that um, in order for any institution to thrive, it has to be fiscally sound. And so I'm going to switch to Michelle a little bit because as libraries transition to traditional book lending, to more mm -hmm. community centers, to more third spaces, what are some of the challenges that we are seeing libraries face as they move into the 21st century, I guess you could say? Well, as expectations of the community grow and, and broaden, our libraries have grown and, and broadened and evolved their services. Um, it, it's pretty amazing to take a step back and look and see library services, that, how they've changed within the, within the past five to 10 years, uh, obviously pre-pandemic versus post-pandemic. Uh, but really one of the biggest things that we've started to see, and this is where the financial piece comes in too, is that libraries as a gathering place is extremely important. Um, and I'm actually going to give a shout out to Hallie Rich and Library Journal. So um, if you haven't seen this month's copy of Library Journal, it really does talk about loneliness and what we're seeing mm. post-pandemic from people as far as that hunger for connections. And that's really what... Uh, public libraries and that physical space provide, whether it's a cookbook club, which I was reading about on the way up here this morning, um, cookbook club, after school snacks and meals, whether it's in-person uh, tutoring and uh, uh, homework help, homework mm -hmm. helpers as far as the learning gap that we're seeing post-pandemic. In order for all of those services to happen, we have to have a physical space for that. That is not going away and it's in, in greater need. But in order to do that physical space, to have that physical space, there's a cost that comes to that. Um, you know, we have Carnegie buildings, right? Andrew Carnegie, wonderful. But guess what the average age of most uh, public library buildings are? It's at least 40 years. Um, and we're talking about billions of dollars worth of, of needs nationwide as far as upgrading our buildings so that they're 21st century ready for today's technology so that they can meet the needs of the community. Um, we are very fortunate in the state of Ohio, yes, because we get state funding for operations, but what do we not get money for? We don't get money for facilities, and that makes it extremely difficult because we're different from other states. Other states, uh, in other states, public libraries are a division within city or county government, and here in Ohio, we're separate political subdivisions, mm -hmm. but that also means we're also responsible for those facilities and for maintenance, and we don't get state funding for that. And so right now there's um, a very important conversation happening at the State House about, <laughs> in case you haven't heard, um, about capital bills and uh, a one-time strategic uh, community investment fund. And so uh, we were able to get one library project funded um, coming out of the House, uh, but we uh, were a little disappointed 
but we are very optimistic and hopeful uh, with the Senate that we're hopefully gonna get some facilities money for our public libraries to be able to provide the services that they need. Thank you, Michelle. Um, I'm gonna ask you this question. We didn't talk about this, but if, oh, no. if, people, <laughs> if people wanted to support their libraries at the state level, what do, what do they need to do? They need to talk to their senator. They need to talk to their state senator and their um, House of Representatives member and let them know how much they love their public library, how important their public library is and the services that they receive from their public library. Whether you have a, a parent that has dementia that goes to the library and works with memory kits or you borrow a memory kit from the library to work with your, your parent or you have a library with, um, with a family space. So mom, dad, guardian, whoever, can come in and better themselves and have a space for their child to also play because childcare is an issue right now. Mm -hmm. And so all of those things, those are just a few examples of what's happening in our libraries. But in order for those to happen, we have to have funding to do it. And talking with your legislators helps. Thank you. I think that's a call to action. All of us are in this, <laughs> in this room today because we love libraries. So be sure to call your state representative and your elected officials yeah. to tell them how much you love libraries. It would be me without a call to action. So yeah. sorry. I love it. I love it. <laughs> uh, Sonia, we're going to move to you from um, not only a perspective from Be More, Baltimore, uh, but also a, a national. <laughs> Not fair. We passed the Super Bowl. It's over. Um, uh, we've heard a lot of shout outs today uh, to some of the partners here in Cleveland. But from a national perspective, what's some partner, so what are some partnerships that are you seeing that are that are thriving, some lessons learned that you can share with our community here? Oh, that's a great question. I, I mean, there's there's like a million different partnerships, successful library partnerships that I can point to. But uh, partnerships are really essential to libraries in terms of extending our reach out into the community. Um, and no library has you know, a bottomless budget, right? And so there's limited resources. And so having, having partnerships really do help us extend our reach for, for maximum impact. Um, and libraries make really attractive partners for a number of reasons. Uh, first and foremost, people trust libraries in ways that they don't trust other entities or other institutions. And so partners know that, and they want what they want some of our juice. They want some of that. Um, and also, we have uh, a lot of facilities. Um, we have physical presence in the communities that we serve, and that helps in terms of distribution and points of access. And lastly, libraries have deep networks within their communities. We know people, and we can connect other folks to audiences that may, they may not have access to. Um, but just thinking of uh, really successful partnerships, uh, libraries are hyper-local institutions. And our job is to connect with our communities and figure out what it is that our communities want and need, identify where those gaps are, and try to and bridge those divides. And partnerships, really effective partnerships, really help us uh, achieve that. And so um, just thinking you know, across the country, partnerships that I've heard about that are, are really kind of cool, um, in Pierce County over in the Tacoma area in Washington on the other side of the country. Uh, they've got a fantastic partnership with their local food bank where they have refrigerated cases of food inside some of their branches because they know that their community is spread out geographically. It's over 2,000 uh, square miles, which is really far. Um, and then they also are really active with their local elections board. Um, there in, in the state of Washington, they do all mail-in ballots. So the staff there, not only do they have 
ballots, ballot boxes in all of the branches in that library system, but the staff are trained to assist people with issues that they might be having with their ballots. Again, because it's so spread out geographically, if you are having trouble with your ballot, if it doesn't work there at the library, mm -hmm. then you would have to drive up to an hour to Tacoma to get that straightened out. So they're able to facilitate that right there at the point of need in the branch. Um, and that's a really successful partnership that they have. Um, closer to home, uh, to, to y'all uh, in Skokie, uh, Illinois, in their public library system, they've got a fantastic partnership with a number of uh, area nonprofits that work with teens on building job skills. So they come to these teens come to the library and they have jobs and activities and things for them to do so that they're building job skills. So these teens are reading to adults with intellectual disabilities. They're helping to deliver materials to homebound patrons. Uh, thinking of my own library system, we have a number of partnerships. We partner with an organization called Vision to Learn, uh, where uh, at the public library, kids any, from K to 12 can come and get a free eye exam. And if they need glasses, we get them glasses mm. for free at the public library. Oh, that's uh, yes, yes, I love it. So there's, there's just so many examples of the fabulous things that libraries are doing in partnership with other entities. Um, libraries, uh, again, again this, like it, it just makes sense for libraries and other entities to not work in silos. At the, same, at, at the end of the day, we all want the same things, mm -hmm. and we have uh, a lot in common than we have uh, differences. And so it just makes sense to pool our resources, to join forces, so that we can achieve whatever it is that we're trying to achieve and, and, and do it all for maximum impact. Thank you. Sonia, and, and everyone actually on this panel has touched on um, trust. That libraries are a place of trust. And I'm gonna go to Michelle with this question. How have you seen libraries not only foster and cultivate trust, but also cultivate inclusivity, um, especially among diverse communities? So public libraries provide services to everyone in the community. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone. And that means individuals with disabilities, people of color, people of, of different nationality, people of um, all kinds. And so one of the best things that I always love going into, especially a Carnegie building, is that you'll see open to all mm. right above the top. But, uh, but that means having something for everyone, right? That means having LGBTQ materials. Um, that means having books on sex education or, or whatever. I mean, I, all sorts of things. And so um, some always say, well, you know, if you have something in your library collection that offends someone, then you're doing your job. Uh, because there's nothing that requires you to utilize a service. There's nothing that requires someone to check out a book. But the library is required to have something for everyone. And so that's one of the things, um, when I was talking earlier about the loneliness and uh, the hunger for connections, when someone comes into a library, they're coming in there for a reason or for a service. And if they see something on the shelf that looks like them or makes them feel welcome, that they feel safe. They feel like they trust the people there. Um, so that really is, as far as today, as far as having something for everyone, bringing people in. There's no judgment. I'm going to still... Felton's the People's University, which I'm still waiting on my hooded sweatshirt, just saying. Um, but the, the, it's the People's University. People from all walks of life are welcome. A homeless person can come in for a meal. Um, a mom and her kids can come in. Um, a, a scholar, an academic can come in. 
It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what you have on. It doesn't matter your, your economic class. You are all welcome at the library. And uh, people trust us for that. But it's also the amazing work of everyone in this room so that, uh, so that everyone feels welcome. Yeah. Can, I, can I just add to that? Because sure. I think um, <laughs> we're going out of turn here. I Maybe did say People's University. <laughs> Sorry. No, no because I, 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 think it's, I think it's really important that everyone understands that libraries are under attack right now. Yes. Right? We have, especially across the country, we've been more fortunate in a while that we haven't received the uh, book ban groups that have been coming out, especially in Florida and in the South. But they are on fire in the South, right? And they are, um, you know, banning books left and right. And so we we've, we've really have to understand that these folks are looking to come to Ohio. And uh, we just have to be resolute in the fact that we will not allow folks to determine what we read. Mm -hmm. So I think that is um, poignant for this moment. And you mentioned open to all. And I think, um, yeah, I don't know who said it, but there's a saying that pretty much is, um, the one way you can take away freedom from individuals is to take their ability to learn and to access to knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so what sort of strategies um, are you all thinking about as these, and maybe Sonia, you can share from a national perspective, sure. what libraries are, what strategies they are exploring as some of these attacks are, are coming, I'm gonna say our way, because I'm gonna take it personal. Yeah, there, there's, there's 30 states uh, in the country where they've been successful at adopting statewide legislation that uh, basically inhibits what you can read, what you can and cannot have access to, and or penalizes librarians for doing their jobs. Um, uh, and they've either been successful or they're trying. Um, so there are um, some states, mine included, uh, where we are actively pursuing uh, freedom to read legislation. Um, I, I was a really, uh, I was involved in a fantastic coalition. We co-wrote a bill, um, and it's, uh, I testify next week, so wish me luck. Um, <laughs> But it's, um, it's, it's scary times right now for libraries. Um, Maryland, if you don't know the politics, is a pretty blue state. Um, and yet we have Moms for Liberty chapters all over, including in my own county, Baltimore County. Um, and we are seeing examples of books being pulled off of, of shelves. Um, in the county next door to mine, the, the head school media specialist, um, because she refused to uh, remove certain books that somebody in the community found to be offensive. She was demoted and now she's teaching middle school social studies. Mm -hmm. So our bill in Maryland is, is uh, meant to be an antidote to that so that we don't become like a Florida or some of the states that we're seeing in, in the South. Um, but I do think that uh, there is, um, a lot of folks are starting to wake up to this, that this is a thing. I, the only places that I know that actively ban books are like China and North Korea and Russia. Oh yes, and now parts of the United States. Um, I think people have not been fully aware of the breadth of this, um, that this has been happening in our, in our own country. Um, and it's happening and it's, it's getting to be alarming. And I think folks are starting to 
uh, rise up and, and speak and say, no, this is not acceptable. We don't want this. Um, and the studies, the statistics show that the majority of Americans uh, feel that books should not be banned. So this is not a partisan issue. Mm -hmm. And so we have an opportunity in libraries to, to stand up uh, for the freedom to read, uh, because this is the freedom to read and access information is the cornerstone of our American democracy. Yeah. Thank you for your testimony in advance. Thank you for um, I think, you know, in Ohio too, also, we kind of feel like there's a little bit of complacency, right? Because it's not going to come to Ohio. We have really strong public libraries, we've got mature collection development policies. Um, but I do think it is incumbent upon us to start organizing our communities and to organize those advocates. And so, to that extent, you know, we're giving, you know, giving talks to our community about intellectual freedom. They haven't really asked us yet to talk about intellectual freedom, but we're talking to them and saying, and as those people come up to us and say, oh, this is really happening around the country, you know, how do we get involved in collecting those names, collecting those individuals, and helping organize communities around that? Because as you said, we do have a tremendous amount of support, but having an organized support when those people come knocking, I think, is really important. So I do have one thing just to add on to Jason, uh, because we do, the Ohio Library Council represents every, all public libraries in the state of Ohio. Um, and uh, Sonia was correct that the national study about the majority of, of individuals, whether they're Republican or whether they're Democrat, they actually believe books should not be banned and that someone else should not determine whether or not you and I have access to something. We are the ones that make that decision, not other people. Um, so, but I think one of the most interesting things I've seen most recently with some of these organized groups is that they're angry or they're mad about something because of something they saw on social media Mm -hmm. or because someone told them to be mad. They haven't actually read the book. Nope. Not at all. They don't know that the library has a collection development policy and that educated individuals have gone through this long process to determine what's actually in the collection. Uh, but at the end of the day, as American citizens living in the United States, you have a freedom to read, you have a freedom of speech. I love the freedom of speech wall, by the way. Mm -hmm. When I came in, we were talking about the new wall that's going up. Um, so. But, but that is a constitutional right that we have mm -hmm. that most people don't realize. And yeah. so I, I think as some of these efforts continue in other states, and I hope we continue to keep them tamped down here in Ohio, mm -hmm. um, you're going to see lawsuits. Yeah. And, you're gonna, and it's going to cost people a lot of money um, if they make those mistakes. So. All right, we're not going to end on this note. <laughs> <laughs> you know, our, we have gone from the Book It pizza program to banning books. <laughs> not okay. Um, quick last question. It's a yes or no question. Um, can libraries be everything to everyone? Sonia. Quick? How much time do we got? Yeah. <laughs> Cynthia's watching me, so. <laughs> Um, just thinking about my library system, we, we, do, uh, we really do try to be all things to all people, but it's, it's not realistic and it's not sustainable because we do not have unlimited resources. So we really do try to strike a balance between equality and equity. Equality is where you give everybody the same things, right? So we have a really robust collection. We make sure that all of our 19 branches have access to you know, the best Wi-Fi and computers. Uh, this, this past year, I'm really proud, we touched every single one of our 19 branches where all of our branches got something, new furniture, new shelving, just to make sure that the spaces were nice and fresh and modern and clean. Um, but then we also focus on equity because not everybody, Baltimore County is not monolithic. Neither one of our communities are monolithic and not everybody is starting at the same place. Not everybody has access to the same resources. 
Uh, so it's about being very intentional and identifying who are the most marginalized, the most vulnerable mm -hmm. amongst us, and how do we level the playing field so that folks can compete in the economy, so that people can be successful as entrepreneurs, so that students can excel at school, so that everybody can be successful in life. And so when we are making uh, investments, you know, thinking about Chromebook distribution, thinking about uh, where we distribute uh, snacks and meals to kids who are food insecure, when we think about where we're going to have lawyers in the library programs, when we think about um, where we're going to make significant capital investments, where we're going to be building new libraries, mm -hmm. we're always thinking about who are the most vulnerable among us and where do they live in the county and mapping that out using the data that's available to us. So I think it's possible to achieve both equality and mm -hmm. equity. Um, but you have, to be, you have to be strategic in how you do that, and you have to um, really prioritize how you allocate your resources, which are ultimately going to be limited. Director, we're going to end with you so we can get to the audience. Yes. <laughs> Only one, I'm impressed. Only one more. The board can call me if they need to, you know. Yeah. In the audience Q&A, for our live stream audience or those just joining us, I'm Kristen Beard Adams, President of the City Club Board of Directors. Joining us on stage to discuss the evolution of public libraries are Sonia Alcantara Antoine, CEO, Alcantara Antoine, President of the uh, Baltimore Public Library and President of the Public Library Association. Michelle Francis, Executive Director of the Ohio Library Council. Jason Kuchma, Executive Director and Fiscal Officer of the Toledo Lucas Public Library. And Felton Thomas, Executive Director and CEO of the Cleveland Public Library. Moderating today's conversation is Chanel Smith Wiggum, Senior Vice President and Director of Community Relations and Corporate Initiatives at KeyBank. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining us via our live stream at cityclub.org. If you'd like to text a question for our panelists, please text it to 330-541-5794, and the City Club staff will do its best to work it into the program. May we have the first question, please. So my name is Pete Van Leer. I'm a researcher with Policy Matters Ohio and a founding member of the Honesty for Ohio Education Coalition. We formed a couple years ago to fight off the uh, anti-CRT attacks, and that's been continued to evolve. So my question to you all is, how, how should public libraries and public schools start to work together to fend off these attacks on uh, the freedom to read, the freedom to learn? And um, what steps are, or what steps are you taking are ready to do this? Because we know that, obviously, the attacks have been happening on public schools in our state, and I'm starting to hear that they're happening in libraries as well, against libraries, so I'd love to hear that. Uh, how you're going to, how you think you all should work together with public schools. You want me to start? You can start. You start and then I want to speak on a couple of things. Um, so I'll start. Hi Pete, thank you for coming. <laughs> uh, so I think part of it is um, education. Uh, we already have some uh, well-established partnerships uh, with schools and actually where some public libraries are actually physically located in a co-space with the school district. Um, but I, I do think starting there with partnerships is important, and I think educating the community. Um, I'm not going to go down the whole legal lease because there are different legal standards between the public, between school district responsibilities and, and public libraries and far as access. There's some case law there um, from the U.S. Supreme Court 
specifically for schools. But, um, but with all of that said, I do think those partnerships and educating the community and getting to the community first, because a lot of times what we're seeing when some of these people are angry or mad about something or they're calling and yelling at the librarian, some of them aren't even in the state of Ohio. In most of these cases, they're literally from like Missouri or Texas or some other state and, and making veiled threats over the phone. They're not even physically here. And so, uh, but I think the partnerships and I think educating the community about the processes that are in place and what the, either the school or the public library is actually doing is incredibly important. So, Andy, go ahead. I would say just and being advocates for libraries in public schools. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. First yeah. and foremost. I, I think there, there's a couple of ways of looking at this. One is, and you know, if anybody wants to find out more, Steve Potash is someone who's kind of leading the fight in the sense that we have to recognize that there is a lot of work that needs to be done for all of us to start running for school board or for uh, to be on the library boards or finding ways to get appointed to these boards because that's how they've been taken over by folks winning and getting access to the boards and then being able to. So we've got to help support folks who are running who are going to be supportive of the freedom to read. That's the first point. And I think there are a lot of folks that are doing the work um, with the band book club and others to make sure that people who are looking to get access to it, even if they're taken out of the schools, get access to these books. Mm. And then finally, I think the schools and the libraries have historically, uh, people may be shocked, not had the relationships that they should, right? Across the country, I talk to library directors all the time and I ask them, well, how are their relationships with their school boards? And I think it always is one of those things that we have to work harder to make sure that our boards are in alignment on issues that are really, really important. And we're very fortunate to have a school board that is working with us to be in alignment so that we can you know, fight these types of situations. And I'll add that um, I think it's important. I mean, we're, we're in a room here of library lovers. Raise your hand if you hate libraries. <laughs> <laughs> So obviously this is a room full of library lovers. Today's program is about library love and love for libraries. And so I think it's important for us to not have so much professional awe that we uh, blind ourselves to the fact that not everybody loves libraries, mm. that not everybody supports the freedom to read freely. And don't wait for you, your library or your community to face its first challenge to be like, oh, 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 oh what do I do? You know, you need to be prepared. Um, and so part of that is building supporters, educating people along the way, finding allies, making sure that you have a strong collection development policy, uh, making sure they have clear processes in place, making sure you're training your staffs well in advance, making sure that your boards are in alignment with what it is that the library does and how it collects materials for diverse audiences that represent diverse perspectives and, and, and uh, uh, diverse voices. And so I, I just think it's, I think that's kind of the, the Achilles heel of libraries is that all of these book challenges that are happening right now, I think there's been a steady drumbeat of this happening until now all of a sudden it's mm. like this big thing that's exploded. And a lot of people, a lot of leaders within libraries have been caught flat-footed. They've, they've been blindsided by all of it. And so I feel like we just need to be more proactive in anticipating these types of things and, and preparing ourselves and preparing our libraries and preparing um, our library community to withstand uh, and weather the storm that, that, that we're facing right now.
Yes, I would just was wondering if uh, you could share what your libraries are doing to help immigrants and refugees specifically. I can start with that. You know, so I was mentioned earlier that we work with partners. Obviously, libraries are great vessels for community engagement. Um, but there's also a role that libraries can play in convening and bring people together around issues that are important. Uh, and so to that extent, in Toledo, we're one of the lead organizers around Welcome Toledo Lucas County, uh, which is a, a coalition of the library, the county, and the city uh, aimed at uh, ensuring that our community and our, our city and our county are welcoming to uh, refugees, people, uh, new Americans, people from diverse cultures. Uh, and what that really means is um, helping people get settled in the community and working with different partners and organizations that are doing that but basically taking a lead role in kind of organizing the resources uh, that those communities need uh, to get settled into their communities. And you know, Toledo's a place where we're losing population. Cleveland is similar. Uh, and, and I think it, one of the key strategies to, to counter that is to be welcoming to people from different communities. Yeah, one of the keys are, are, are like partnerships and working on it. But we've been working very closely with the Cuyahoga County Public Library because many of the refugees are within the different pockets of the city and around the city to work um, to provide, you know, for our Ukrainian refugees and then our Afghani refugees. And we have folks from the Congolese and others who are coming here. And so we partner on a basic, um, basic literacy program called Aspire Greater Cleveland. So we are providing our basic literacy because many of the folks who are coming here um, need to get those basic skills of, of being able to have language skills so that they can go out and get work or start to do the work that they need to do to, to become citizens here in, in the city. Good afternoon. I uh, have a couple of questions, but they're quick. Uh, I'm reading a t I'm wearing a t-shirt. Just a couple of questions, Merrill. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wearing a t-shirt that says, read banned books. And um, first, I want to encourage the students who are here to please start banned book clubs in your schools. And that relates to my first question. Uh, have you started any banned book clubs, especially in the summer when students are coming to the library for activities? So that's my first question. My second question is, do you have lobbyists who work with our state legislators to make sure that they don't pass anything stupid? <laughs> well, we would never talk about the legislators being stupid, especially when they're in, they're the, in the room. room. <laughs> No, we can always count on, you know, State Rep. Brian Rose Sweeney, and, and we have Dave Greenspan here, who was previously there. I think, yeah, please give them a yes. round of applause. They are very supportive of libraries. So I don't want to, I've you been talking a lot. Go ahead. I can. Well, I can't, you start with the first one, I can come back on the lobbying one. I was going to answer the question about the lobbyists. You but go, and then everybody I'll Well, no, you go, you go. <laughs> well, being the Ohio Library Council, that's what we do. Um, that's our number one thing. I mean, not only do we provide legal information um, to our Ohio's public libraries, but we also provide advocacy. Um, so that's one of the things that we do. We do also have outside lobbyists that we work on, uh, different ones for the governor, different ones for the House, and different ones for the Senate. And so, I mean, some of our libraries also have their own uh, lobbyists. And so, um, but it is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly important. Yeah, it's, it's really critical. Uh, in my state of Maryland, um, there is a lobbyist that the uh, 
we love our acronyms in, in library land, uh, MAPLA, which is the Maryland Association of Public Library Administrators. So they have a lobbyist that, that they work with uh, that works on legislation for, that are specific to the entire state. My library system, I, we have our own lobbyists that, that advances kind of our missions and our priorities um, at, the state, at the state level. Um, but it's just so critical. Um, it's just one of the things, don't get me started on this, but it's just one of the things that they do not teach us in library school. <laughs> political advocacy, and it is so, so critical uh, in order for you to be successful in your role as a library leader, but also to make sure that your library system, that your li the libraries in your state are successful. You need to know how to do political advocacy, and so it's just, it's just a critical part of the job, um, non-negotiable. You, you have to be out there um, talking to legislators uh, and, and, as necessary, advancing legislation uh, and supporting legislation that's going to help your libraries uh, be successful. Uh, and I'll say, back to the question about banned book clubs, um, we at, in Toledo, we really haven't done that. We really have to start read book clubs. You know, we um, don't want to give a whole lot of oxygen to the, to the idea of banning books, and so we're really focusing on intellectual freedom and the positive side of that, um, acknowledging, of course, that banned books do exist, yeah. but... Uh, well, and can I add to that? Because the question I always get from reporters, um, and shout out to Idea Stream because they actually did a wonderful piece on uh, banning books and challenges in Ohio a couple weeks ago. So thank you. Um, but the question we always get, especially on, from a nat from national reporters, is how many banned books have how many banned books have been in Ohio? And my response has so far has been, I'm not aware of any. I've now challenges, yes but actually banned, uh, not that I'm aware of, not here, so. Shameless plug, we're having a program this week, Baltimore County Public Library, it's gonna be a virtual program, and we're looking at the issue of intellectual freedom and the freedom to read, but from a national perspective. So, do register, I'd love to see you there. Uh, we're having Emily Knox, she's gonna be speaking, we're having Nate Coulter from uh, uh, Central Arkansas, I can't remember the name of his system, uh, in, the, in Little Rock area. Uh, just talking about some of the challenges that they've seen and how they've been able to successfully fight some of the book challenges. We'll get the information and, and send it out to everybody. Perfect. Um, here's a question that came in via text. What do you think libraries should be looking ahead to in the next five to ten years? Downloading books and other materials were cutting edge. That was cutting edge. So what's next? Can I? I you start. Uh, I'll say I think there is a really important role for libraries to be educators in this new AI world, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And in, in this period of time, we sit in our executive leadership team with our chief information technology officer, John Malcolm there, continually like saying, what in the world is chat GPT? Show us, what it, show us how, right? And I know if, if we're struggling, I think there is a really, really important, because we know our staff worry, because everyone hears that um, AI is going to make 20% of the workforce go away, right? People are not going to have jobs anymore because AI is going to take that over. And part of our job is to make sure that our folks understand what exactly that means and how they can harness AI in their own lives and, and for their future. One thing, oh, I just want to do one thing because it really is important for purposes of Cuyahoga County. So um, telehealth, like we talked about this, and telehealth is huge, and obviously technology and personal devices and, and the whole healthcare industry, but one of the biggest things where we're seeing more and more of is people who need tech assistance. They may have MyChart or 
something or they have multiple doctors and they have no idea how to use the technology in order to manage their own health care. Mm-hmm. And like Chanel was saying, you know, libraries are trusted. You're not gonna, when someone comes in for assistance with their, with their medical chart or that's all on their phone, mm-hmm. who do they trust to be able to show them just how to use their device and access that information? And that's one of the biggest things that we're seeing. And I know there's a, um, some conversations happening between partnerships between hospitals and others. Um, so I, that's gonna be, it's a whole other level um, that I think we're gonna see. I think before you get to either chat GPT or telehealth, um, digital equity in our yeah. communities. Yeah. We saw in Stark Relief during the yeah. pandemic, you know, that uh, at least probably a third of most of our community members are not connected at home, or don't, or if they are connected, they don't have the, the knowledge to use the technology effectively. And so I think libraries can play a key role in, in driving community conversations and advocacy around making sure that everyone's connected. Jason stole my, my words. Sorry. Sorry. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Um, but I think I think the other area for libraries, the area of growth, is um, kind of what we we talked about earlier, which is kind of like the social work aspect of, that we're doing in, in libraries. I feel like the the pandemic um, exacerbated inequities that were always there, but were always just kind of swept under the rug, mm-hmm. or were addressed with flimsy social nets that just completely evaporated during the pandemic, and libraries stepped into that breach to really try to address some of those needs. And I don't see that going away anytime soon. We were distributing food during the pandemic, and we're still distributing food to kids and families post-pandemic. And and we have social workers on our staff. Um, The library system next door in Baltimore City, the Enoch Pratt Free Library, they have recovery specialists to assist people with addiction. They have uh, housing specialists to assist people get attainable housing. So um, I think libraries are going to forever be the space where, yes, you can go and get the, the latest bestseller, but yes, you can also go to access help and assistance, particularly when you are in crisis. Um, hello, my name is Kyle Williams, and I'm a student at MC Squarestime High School. And I wanted to know from you know the experts about um, your guys' opinions on big national archives such as the Internet Archive that's preserving banned media, banned books, and maybe we can have more of those given out by not just public libraries, but maybe like a big coalition of all the public libraries to come together and give out books that are um, either banned or restricted and have them on one place that everybody can access, like online and such. So, yeah. That's a really great question, and, and it is actually happening right now, yep. right? There's the Digital Public Library of America uh, collects uh, the four of the hubs that you know, download and, and digitize all these are within the state of Ohio, mm-hmm. and we put all those together, um, items from Ohio, and the Digital Public Library of America collects all of those, and they have a program right now, if you go there, where every banned book that is out there can be accessed for, for our community, right? It is, it is really, really important that that work is done because, you know, while those books are going to be on our shelves in Cleveland, if you go out into some of the communities um, in rural areas of, of like Oklahoma or other places, they can't find them and they won't have them on their shelves. And many of the young people are embarrassed to go and ask for them. Right, because they will be shamed by the people who are there, right? And so having it online, which is, it, which, granted, 
the Digital Public Library of America has to do a better job to make sure young people like you have the knowledge that they're, they're out there for you. So thank you. That was a great question. Another text question. Uh, I work with members of the disabled community. Specifically, I would like to know if there are plans to increase access to more Braille and large print works. Ordering is a nice service, but finding books on the shelf is much better. Mm. Uh, I'll say Felton. Uh, yeah. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that last part wasn't in there. That was sorry, well, yeah, that I'm uh, on the hook for this question. No, well, I mean, we're very proud that the Clinton Public Library is the, you know, serves as the library for the blind and print disabled in the city of, of, of in the state. So we do it for the full state. And so anyone who is looking for books in Braille, anyone that's looking for large print or um, to get access to um, books that are on tape can get that. And it is simply by calling the Ohio Library for the Blind and Print Disabled, that person can get everything they want. Now, and we have somewhere a collection of a, over 11 million items, right? I know we have a lot of them in, um, you know, you know um, that are accessible for folks. So I think we're, we're doing okay, but we will be more than willing to um, hear any complaints that folks might have about how we are doing this, doing this work. And I was just gonna add that accessibility, not just the large print, but um, you know, we're, we're doing an audit of all of our locations right now from the parking lot all the way into our stacks um, with the Ability Center, which is a community organization yeah. that we work with to ensure that they, their goal is for Toledo, Lucas County, to be the most disability-friendly uh, community in the country. So we're working with them to do that, but they're also, we're also auditing all of our programs too, yeah. to ensure that they're accessible for people with different abilities. And we all, all have been working on our websites to make sure that our websites are more um, accessible for the, those who might have um, print issues. Hi, I'm Terry Metter. I'm a librarian at Cleveland Public. And the question of the day is, can libraries be everything to everyone? And the operative response to that for me as a member of SEIU 1199, as a nearly 20-year employee of Cleveland Public Library, is can libraries be personally and professionally rewarding places to work for the people who work in them. Uh, since the Great Recession, our wages have stagnated, our staffing has declined, and I hear a lot from my colleagues about being asked to do more with less and feeling really burnt out. And I'm wondering what you all and your organizations as leaders do to help with burnout, prevent burnout, and make sure that leadership is not just top down, but bottom up as well. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And with, without our staff, public libraries do not exist. I think you know we yeah. we've really focused on um, on making sure that you know, we talk about all these partnerships. And I, the answer to the question, can libraries be everything to everyone? My answer is yes. And it's not yeah. incumbent upon our staff to be everything to yeah. everyone. It's you know using the library as that public infrastructure uh, as a place for all of these organizations, these resources to engage the community in ways that they can't do otherwise. Um, so that takes the torque back off of staff, you know, we have a roadmap right now at Toledo Lucas County Public Library where our goals really as, as, a, as a system are, what do we do really well, which is helping kids learn to read, helping students be successful, and helping adults expand their horizons. Like that's, those are the three things we do full stop, and then we bring all of our partners in to help do the work that they do uh, really well in the community. I think uh, from a leadership perspective, one of the things that I'm always uh, pushing my staff to think about is, okay, if we're gonna do this, if we're gonna add this onto the plate, what comes off? 
And we don't do that enough, I feel, mm -hmm. in our profession. I feel that we, uh, we really do try hard to be all things to all people. And um, we lead with our hearts, and we operate with our hearts. And, and it comes from good intentions. But realistically, um, there are consequences to that, and burnout is, is one of those. Mm -hmm. And so I think having those conversations with your folks about um, you know, this thing that we want to do, first of all, is it in, in alignment with our mission, our vision, our values? Um, is it on our strategic plan? Um, is, this, is this an area that we really do need to focus on? And if that's the case, we do need to have a conversation about what comes off the plate. Either we stop something or maybe we slow down on something, um, which, is, which is really, really hard to do. But it's really critical um, in order for your library systems to be successful and to ultimately have maximum impact in the community. Yeah. And I think it, the importance of that question is when I say yes, blanketly, that can libraries be everything to everyone, there is a truth that it may not be able to be everything for everyone at that certain time, right? And we do have a strategic plan. We understand what we can and cannot do at certain pieces of time. But when you look at a community like the city of Cleveland that has so many struggles, that is first in many of the things that we absolutely cannot be first in, we cannot set and say, we just walk away from those community members who need us. We must be working to find other agencies to bring it in. Too many times our staff are asked to be social workers. So we go out and we're working to bring social workers into our libraries, um, working with the county and working with United Way and working with other agencies. Because we can find and do that work. It needs to be done. Um, but the library staff can't be doing it, right? So. Can we be everything to everyone? Yeah, but maybe not in the way that it's just blanketly that all of our staff do everything. Wow. Please applaud. Thank you to Sonia, Michelle, Jason, Felton, and Chanel for joining us at the City Club of Cleveland today. Forums like this one are made possible thanks to the generous support from individuals like you, including many of you who are supporters of our Guardians of Free Speech campaign. You can learn more about that campaign at cityclub.org. Today's forum is presented in partnership with the Cleveland Public Library and Overdrive. We are so grateful for your support. Please join us in welcoming students from MC Square STEM High School as well. And we'd also like to welcome guests at tables hosted by Bostwick Design Partnership, the Cleveland Food Bank, Cleveland Public Library, Cleveland Public Library Foundation, Clevenet, Cleveland State University, Max Maxine Goodman Levin School of Urban Affairs, Cuyahoga County Public Library, Cuyahoga, Co Cuyahoga Metropolitan Housing Authority, Global Cleveland, Heights Library, Land Studio, Overdrive, Rocky River Public Library, Taft Advisors, the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland, and Westlake Porter Public Library. Next week at the City Club on Tuesday, February 20th, we will hear from two CEOs of our region's top hospitals, Dr. Mohalovic with the Cleveland Clinic and Dr. Majarian with University Hospitals to discuss their continued partnership to improve well-being in our communities. We can learn more about this forum and others at cityclub.org. Thank you all for joining us today, and that concludes our forum. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org.
production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.